The text says, In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now, Amnon had an advisor named Jonadab, son of Shemaiah, David's brother, Amnon's cousin. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He asked Amnon, Why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight so I may eat from her hand. David sent word to Tamar at the palace, go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon who was lying down. She took some dough, kneaded it, made the bread in his sight, and baked it. Then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said, so everyone left. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food here into my bedroom so I may eat it from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she'd prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, Come to bed with me, my sister. No, my brother, she said to him. Don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. No, she said to him, sending me away would be a great wrong, a greater wrong than what you have already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, get this woman out of my sight and bolt the door after her. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. She was wearing an ornate robe for this is the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornate robe she was wearing. She put on her, her hands on her head and went away weeping aloud as she went. Her brother Absalom said to her, Has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet now, my sister. Uh, for now, my sister, he is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house a desolate woman. When King David heard all this, he was furious. Now, let's pause here for just a minute. The text tells us that King David was furious, but he didn't do anything about it. There's no action at all in this text. In fact, there are some older translations, older versions of the Bible that put an explanatory note in here that says... David did nothing about this. And, and, and you wonder to yourself, as you read this text, your astute readers of the Bible should send you questioning, who is this guy whose name is supposedly David who does nothing? Because the David I know 
It's not like this. This is the guy. This is the guy who was when he was insulted by a man named Nabal, armed all of his troops and went after Nabal to cut his head off. This is the king who, when he was a teenager, heard Goliath, a Philistine giant, uh, uh, insulting the name of God, and he ran. He ran to meet him with a sling. To, uh, with a, with a, a sling to, to kill him for insulting God. He was going to feed the giant's flesh to the birds of the air. And here now this happens to his brother. His daughter. This happens to his daughter. And he does nothing. Nothing. This man is no Randall Margraves. Huh. At least Randall Margraves did something. Here's what happens when the king does nothing. Verse 22. And Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. Two years later, when Absalom's sheep shearers were at Baal Hazor near the border of Ephraim, he invited all the king's sons to come there. Absalom went to the king and said, Your servant has had shearers come. Will the king and his attendants please join me? Celebration time. No, my son, the king replied, all of us should not go. We would only be a burden to you. Although Absalom urged him, he still refused to go, uh, (coughs) but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, if not, uh, please let my brother Amnon come with us. The king asked him, why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him, so he sent with him Amnon and the rest of the king's sons. Absalom ordered his men, listen. When Amnon is in high spirits from drinking wine, and I say to you, strike Amnon down, then kill him. Don't be afraid. Haven't I given you this order? Be strong and brave. So Absalom's men did to Amnon what Absalom had ordered. Then all the king's sons got up, mounted their mules, and fled. While they were on their way, the report came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons. Not one of them is left. The king stood up, tore his clothes, and lay down on the ground, and all his attendants stood by with their clothes torn. But Jonadab, son of Shimea, David's brother, said, My lord should not think that they killed all the princes. Only Amnon is dead. This has been Absalom's express intention ever since the day Amnon raped his sister Tamar. Tamar. My lord, the king should not be concerned about the report that all the king's sons are dead. Only Amnon is dead. Meanwhile, Absalom had fled. Now the man standing watch looked up and saw many people on the road west of him coming down the side of the hill. The watchman went and told the king, I see men in the direction of Horonayim on the side of the hill. Jonadab said to the king, See, the king's sons have come. It has happened just as your servant said. As he finished speaking, the king's sons came in wailing loudly. The king too and all his attendants wept very bitterly. Absalom, Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amahud, the king of Geshur, that would be his grandfather. But King David mourned many days for his son. After Absalom fled and went to Geshur, he stayed there three years. And King David longed to go to see Absalom, for he was consoled concerning Amnon's death. 2 Samuel chapter 13 is a chapter about the ripple effect of David's sin. There's a chain of events that begins in chapter 11 and it continues all the way through chapter 19. So into the domestic and regal splendor that was David's kingdom, uh, David, driven by passion and power, dropped this massive stone of his adultery and murder. And here is the tempest 
the undulating waves that result from that sin. David lusted after a married young woman. The Bible describes as beautiful. He took her into his own bed, and then to cover up his crime, he had her son, her husband, killed on the battlefield. Uh, in 2 Samuel 12, Nathan uh, approaches David. We talked about this last week, and he told him a similar story. And David, enraged, said, "That man who is guilty of that crime you're describing should pay fourfold for this." That's the appropriate penalty. And here is a chapter that we just read, chapter 13, where David makes the second of four deposits on that payment. Four of David's sons are going to die young. And here's number two, the apparent heir to the throne, Amnon. The author of 2 Samuel wants you to read this passage. He wants you to see and understand the havoc that is brought into the life of the one who rebels against God. You know, sometimes uh, we're, we're stereotyped, and, and sometimes we deserve it, for judging people that are outside of the church, that we talk about their sins out there, those people. And the Bible is actually more disparaging when it talks about the rebellion of those on the inside, God's people, who rebel against him. In other words, the Bible says more to us about our sin than it says to us about the people outside and their sin. It speaks to both, but it says an awful lot to us. Here's how I want to unfold this text. Um, first, what we're going to do is I want to talk about the ripple effect of sin. What happens to David serves here as notice for us all. And then secondly, I want to talk about why the Bible gives us this level of information. What is this chapter supposed to do for us? We can read it, we can see it, we understand what happened. What are we supposed to do with it? How is this supposed to make us uh, feel or think? Or what are we supposed to, how are we supposed to respond? Uh, most of you in here in this room, I know you already agree with me, sin is bad, right? It's bad. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So why then does David, or why does the author of 2 Samuel dwell on this story so much in such detail? That's the second question I want to get to. The first one, though, let's talk about the ripple effect of sin. What happens? What happens when God's people give themselves over to grievous evil? Three things. Number one, you experience the discipline of God. You experience the discipline of God. This is what David is experiencing as the consequences, consequence of his adultery and murder, God's discipline. And those consequences are coming to him despite the fact that the prophet Nathan had told him that he was forgiven. David, your sins are forgiven. But why then is he still experiencing these consequences? Do they, see, they don't seem to go together, being forgiven and experience consequences. Why the consequences? Well, we talked about this briefly last week. There's a variety of reasons. Sometimes the consequences come to demonstrate the evil of sin. Sometimes they come to show that God doesn't take sin lightly. Sometimes they come to sanctify forgiven sinners. And we talked about God's discipline a little bit last week, but it, it takes on uh, its own flavor and life here. I, I want to make three observations about how this discipline works in David's life here. The first thing that we notice in this passage is that the story unfolds. David's sins from chapter 11 are repeated and exaggerated in his children. So his sins are repeated and exaggerated in his sons, and then he's going to suffer, to go along with that, he suffers like his daughter. So imagine this. 
his, he sees his own sins in his sons, and he suffers like Tamar does. Not exactly the same way, but there's parallels that are drawn here. Uh, show me the, I want to show you this text here. So um, both David in chapter 11 and Amnon in chapter 13 are drawn in by beautiful women. Text is very specific about Bathsheba's beauty and about Tamar's beauty. But Amnon's, so David was uh, lust, his lust, it was bad, but Amnon is paralyzed by it. His desire is controlling. See, David's sins are repeated and magnified in his sons. Then uh, there's, uh, it happens with Absalom too. So when David is plotting in chapter 11 to uh, have Uriah killed, he uses this term, strike the sword and kill him. And Absalom uses those same words when he talks about how he wants his servants to kill Amnon. Strike the sword and kill him. David's sins are being repeated and exaggerated in the lives of his sons. And he's suffering like his daughter Both of them are filled with grief in this chapter. Both of them rend their garments in their grief. And it's interesting, the text compares them and how it even introduces us to Tamar. So Tamar is introduced in verse 1 as the sister between two warring brothers. Tamar is the sister caught between these two men. David is the father who's caught between his two sons. The story unfolds. He is... We'll talk about this as weak as Tamar is, even worse. We'll come back to that in a couple minutes. Something else that we observe here about David's uh, discipline that God introduces into his life. So the first observation I made was about how David sees his sins repeated and exaggerated in the lives of his sons and he suffers like his daughter. The second thing to notice here is that David's discipline is directly related to God's promise to him. We talked about this again last week with the death of his son. Do you remember the promise? God had made David a promise. Your son will rule on the throne. You will have a son who will rule forever. His kingdom will be a kingdom of righteousness. And this text emphasizes the fact that it's his sons that are causing his problems. Verse 1, it says, Amnon, the son of David. And then Absalom, the son of David, emphasizing this. In the very point where God had promised to bless him is the point in which God is disciplining David for his sin. There's a a third observation to make about this text, and it's not so much related to David as it is related to how God works. God works providentially in in these scenes to discipline David. This is God's work. He's doing this. God had said to David, I will bring calamity to you. I'm going to discipline you. He uses that language very strongly in chapter 12. I will bring calamity on you. But then in chapter 13, it's interesting, God's name isn't used once in chapter 13. Amnon and Absalom are both living out of their own desires. They're doing exactly what they want to do. They're, uh, they're, they're getting what they want. But at the same time, they are fulfilling. God is working providentially through them to fulfill his purposes. It's the doctrine that we call providence, God at work in the world. The best example of providence, I think, is in, in chapter 
fifth Acts, it's either chapter 4 or 5, I think it's chapter 5, the apostles are together and they're praying in the upper room and they pray to God and they speak to him and they say, uh, Herod and Pontius Pilate conspired together to crucify your holy servant Jesus, which you had planned before. Amnon, Absalom, Herod, Pontius Pilate, they do exactly what they want. No one's forcing them. They're not compelled. And at the same time, God is working out his purposes, God's providence at work. Uh, It reminds me a little bit of how our doctrinal statement describes God's providence. This is a wonderful line. I read it all the time. God works everything in accordance with his will, perfect will, though his sovereignty does not eliminate nor minimize human responsibility. God is disciplining David. God disciplines his people. And that asks me, it makes me ask a question as, as we think about how this text would apply. How do you know in your life if the hardships you're experiencing are discipline from God or something else? How do you know if, if what you're suffering is happening to you because we live in a broken world or because God is disciplining you? Have you ever asked that question? Maybe not in the abstract but maybe in specific, your situation. How do you know? When Job suffered in the Old Testament, his friends told him that it was because God was punishing him, and Job to the very end said, no, no, I am innocent. There was a blind man who was brought to Jesus in John chapter 9, and the disciples, they only had one category for blindness. They said, who's the sinner because of this man's sin? Was it him or was it his parents that he was born blind? a wonderful question. How much sin in the womb did that baby commit? Right? Is he smoking and gambling in there? Who knows? You know, he's born blind. It's his fault. Was it him or his parents? They only had one, one category, right? Suffering is a result of my sin. Do you ever wonder about that when bad things happen to you? Is God disciplining you or, or is it's just something else going on? It can happen in big things or in little things. So if you get in a car accident and you total your car and you break a bone or two, is it because you cheated on your taxes and God is disciplining you for it? Or little things. You leave work one day, you told a lie that day. It's a a little white lie. A friend of yours asked you if you liked her dress and you said it was beautiful and really you think it's ugly. And you you go out and you, you pull the door and it sticks and it smacks you in the head. And you, you, God's getting you. He's disciplining. You turn around and you say, I'm sorry, I lied. Your dress is ugly. And you go home. So is that... <laughs> Do you ever wonder about this? See, David, at least he's got an advantage, right? In chapter 12, Nathan the prophet came to him and said, you're going to suffer and this is going to be God's discipline in your life. I don't have a divine interpreter to tell me about all the circumstances that I face. The question could be agonizing. Is God disciplining me with this suffering because I blew it somewhere? You ever ask that question? D.A. Carson was asked about this. Here are two pieces of advice from him about it that I'll pass on to you. First, he said, remember that in any suffering, God is doubtless doing many things. Remember that in any suffering, God is doubtless doing many things, multiple things, more things than you can probably imagine. Uh, Listen to what he wrote. This is a healthy-sized paragraph, but it's, it's worth listening to. So hear what he said. 
A godly woman in her middle years is diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. What is God doing? My little brain, Carson says, he has a very big brain, but he says, my little brain can imagine several possibilities. At one level, he may be providentially allowing the consequences of the fall to take their course, a constant reminder that it is appointed to us all to die and then face judgment. He may be preparing her for eternity. It is a great grace to know when you're going to die and prepare for it. He may be shocking her 20-something son who is living his life indifferent to the gospel to prod him into self-examination and repentance. He may use her testimony about the joy of the Lord even in the midst of suffering to call another of her children into vocational ministry. He may be using her as a way to teach people in her church what it looks like to die well, anticipating several other deaths in the next two years. He may be teaching her minister husband to slow down and care about his family and in principle other people instead of being endlessly busy with the ministry. He may be sparing her from living long enough to witness the moral destruction of her daughter. Her funeral may be the means by which several of her unconverted relatives for whom she has praying will come to faith, conversions of which she would happily give her life. Perhaps one of those converts will become a Christian pastor of rare gift whose ministry and proclamation will touch thousands. Perhaps she's hiding some deep bitterness and hate in her life and God is using this means to confront her. I've barely, he says, started a list of possible things God may be doing. What does the omniscient God think he is doing? In other words, sometimes we have to cover our mouths and confess in faith that we cannot possibly grasp all that God is doing when someone suffers. So why should we think about how 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 should so why should we think in antithetical terms about how God must be doing this but not that? when in reality he may be doing this and that and that and that and that. But he's trustworthy. We know that for he sent his son to suffer on our behalf. Sometimes when you try to make these direct connections, you are thinking too small. Now, but second though, here Carson says, when we suffer, we should use the occasion for self-examination. Job did. That's what he did. He honestly looked at his life and he said... At the end of it, I'm sure I am innocent. But, but maybe not. You should think about it. Regardless, if your suffering is uh, the, uh, connected to your sin, if this is God's discipline, or if it's not, the answer is the same, isn't it, for us? Run to the cross, trust Him for His mercy, look to Him for His grace and His power in your life. Psalm 1967 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I obey your word. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. So God as a good father disciplines his children. Now, second here, you may encounter the debilitating weakness of sin. You may encounter the debilitating weakness of sin. Do you notice how weak David is in this passage? Proactive, strong, insightful David is, is a pawn. He's powerless. Uh, we already talked about the weakness in not responding to Amnon's behavior. We, we stopped at verse 21 where he does nothing. Actually, it reminds me of Eli. Do you remember Eli? We talked about him last January. Eli the high priest, his sons were committing ter terrible crimes and he didn't say anything about it. 
And now David is doing the same thing. Here's a couple other examples from the text about David's weakness. Do you remember the word send and how important the word send has been? So in, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, the, the key word there is send. David sends for Bathsheba so he can take her to his bed. He sends for Uriah. He sends messengers. He sends Uriah back to his death on the battlefield. David, that's how we know David's sin in 2 Samuel 11. is not just about passion, but it's about power too. He sends and sends and sends. Here, David, in, in chapter 13, he sends too, but actually his sending is a disaster to him. In verse 7, he sends Tamar to Amnon. David, without knowing it, is Amnon's pimp in this passage. And then in verse 27, he sends Amnon to his death with Absalom. All this power he thought he has, and he's using it, and it's disastrous for him. And, and then there is in this passage his surprising lack of insight. When did David become so clueless? David is, is an insightful, incisive man. And why isn't he suspicious when Amnon says that he has to have Tamar come and give him bread? Give give him special food. Why isn't he more suspicious of that? If Amnon had called in his mother, she would have seen through it. No mother would have been fooled for the, by this, right? Why do you want her? There's nothing wrong with you that bread that I can't make can fix. If, if, you need, if you're so sick that only she will fix, you're not that sick, get up, right? That's what a mother would have done. David is just, why isn't he more suspicious? Why isn't he more suspicious of Absalom when he wants Amnon to come to the, the sheep-shearing celebration? Think about how David contrasts with Jonadab in this passage. The Bible says that Jonadab is shrewd. It's not a compliment in this context. How does Jonadab in verse 32 know that Absalom wants to kill Amnon, but David doesn't? Why is David so clueless? David used to know these things. Now he's weak and he's on the outside. Listen to what Peter Leithart wrote about this chapter. After chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, we never see David fighting again. When Absalom threatened and took over the kingdom, David let Joab take care of the battle while David waited in Mahanaim. And when Sheba, a Benjamite, revolted, Joab again handled the battle. To be sure, David was getting old, but old age was no impediment to Moses or to Caleb. Though David was forgiven and though he regained the kingdom, he never recovered his vigor. He lost initiative and spent the rest of his reign feebly reacting to events rather than taking things in hand. David became a pitiable figure, pitiable figure, an empty robe, an old man shivering in his bed. Now he applies it. Listen, Christian leaders take warning. Your private sins will not remain private. Even if they are never discovered, they will sap your fervor and energy and endanger your ministry. David's grievous sin introduced debilitating weakness into his life. Here's a third ripple effect. You introduce collateral damage. You introduce collateral damage. Do you know the worst word in this whole passage is in verse 20, I think, and it's the word desolate. 
And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. It's a word that appears most often in the Old Testament prophets when it talks about a city that's been invaded and destroyed. The, the, the invaders come and they ravage the city and they leave nothing but ruins. And here's Tamar. She's a desolate woman. Her place in the story actually begins in the, in the heart of Amnon, doesn't it? So uh, verse 1 tells us that he loves her. He loves her. How do you evaluate Amnon's love for Tamar? Second huh. Samuel is very clear that they are related. Very clear that they're related. They're half-siblings. It's over and over again in this passage. Um, and, and Scripture says that it is impossible for him to marry her. God's word should have immediately stopped him from fanning the flames of these, uh, these feelings. But he loves her. There's another clue about his love, not just it's illegitimate, but verse 2, it's interesting. He says she was a virgin, so it was impossible for him to do anything to her. That's instructive, those two words, to her. So so he has it in mind that the culmination of his love is that he can sleep with her, but he can't do it because they'll be found out because she's a virgin. And, and if he tries to do anything to her, it will, it will be found out. Her virginity will be gone. This is not love. This is lust. Biblical love serves, it protects, it provides, it encourages, it cherishes, it nourishes. It's, it's possessive. It, 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 it's driven towards consummation that is good and whole, but it is uh, uh, driven to that possessiveness in the sense of protection, not exploitation. So Amnon conspires to be alone with Tamar, and, and the encounter serves to emphasize his virtue Sorry, her virtue and his loathsomeness. Amnon is loathsome. One wonders, you read this text, if David ever confronted his son about anything. Now, one of the ways that this text accomplishes this comparison, this Tamar is virtuous and Amnon is loathsome, is by comparing this text or drawing parallels between this text and other stories in the Bible. You're used to this. This is why the way narratives in the Bible work by making comparisons and contrasts with other characters in similar situations. So uh, follow me here. When Amnon says to uh, Tamar, come to bed with me, he is repeating exactly word to word what Potiphar's wife said to Joseph in Genesis 3. Do you remember that story? So Joseph is... Tamar and Amnon's great-great-great-great-great-great-grand-uncle. And he was sold into slavery into Egypt. He was bought by a man by the name of Potiphar. He grew up in Potiphar's house, or achieved uh, maturity there, and uh, rose to preeminence. And he was good-looking, Joseph was. The text says he was good-looking and handsome. Tamar is beautiful. Joseph is good-looking and handsome. And, and Potiphar's wife lusted after him. And both Tamar and Joseph said, no, no. Both of them. It's interesting if we were drawing other parallels. The Bible draws attention in both of their cases, Tamar and Joseph, to their robes. 
Joseph had a beautiful coat that his father had given him that was torn when he was sold into slavery. Tamar had a beautiful robe that her father had given her that was torn after this in this chapter. Tamar is righteous like Joseph. Amnon is as wicked as a leering, adulterous housewife. She said to him in this text, she said, such a thing should not be done. You know what this is an allusion back to? It's a story, it's an allusion back to a story of another rape in the Bible in Genesis chapter 34. Again, in Tamar and Amnon's family, Dinah, she's woman Tamar's great, great aunt, she was raped by a man named Shechem, and her father didn't do anything about it either. And her brothers did, actually. And when they heard about it, they said, such a thing should not be done in Israel. Such a thing should not be done. Amnon is as wicked as a pagan Canaanite who deserves to die with a sword. Tamar, on the other hand, knows her Bible well enough to try to use the Bible to change his mind. There's another terrible, uh, there's another allusion in this passage to another terrible story in the book of Judges, chapter 19. See, Tamar, she objects to, to Amnon. She, she says, don't do this wicked thing. Don't do this wicked thing. In Judges 19 through 21, this is almost a direct quote that she offers. There's this story of a concubine who was raped by a gang of men. She was thrown to them by her pseudo-husband. He, he was the one that the crowd actually wanted, but they threw the, the woman to her to satisfy the crowd. And somebody in the voice, some voice in the crowd protests, no, my brothers, don't do this wicked thing, this wicked thing. Tamar, huh. Amnon, you are just like the residents of that town, Gibeah, who's just like Sodom. Amnon, you don't belong in David's house. You belong in Sodom and Gomorrah. There's one more allusion in the text. She, she says to him, if you do this, you'll be a fool in Israel. Do you remember Nabal? I mentioned him a few, a few minutes ago. Nabal, the fool. He's in the stories at the end of Samuel and he dies. God takes his life. He's a fool. And, and, and Tamar says, you're going to be a fool if you do this. You will be a fool. Tamar is beautiful. She reveres the law. She wears her robe of virginity with pride. She knows the scriptures. Amnon is a fool like the Canaanites. He doesn't belong in the palace, as I said. He belongs in Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 15 demands the insight of a psychiatrist, doesn't it? After this is over, Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. My thinking is that he's not really, he's not been satisfied the way he thought that she would satisfy him. So now to him, she is a symbol of his disappointed lust. So he treats her like trash, worse than trash, actually. He, he calls a servant in and he uses this very polite language, will you please or may you please throw out this woman and lock her out. She's now an invader. She's a threat to me. She's like a disease and has to be quarantined. She's a desolate woman. 
Bible says, where could I get rid of my disgrace? Verse 13. If you do this to me, where will I get rid of my disgrace? Some of you know firsthand what this is like, what asking that question is like. Two weeks ago, we talked about how Bathsheba was taken by David from her home. She lost her home. She lost her husband. She lost her purity. She lost the baby that came from sleeping with David. And here Tamar loses everything. And the Bible describes this, gra- this assault in graphic terms. And no one seems to care and no one seems to understand because David does nothing. And Absalom, who is the kindest to her of everybody, says, don't take this thing to heart. Really, Absalom? How do you suggest she does this? Where will I get rid of my disgrace? I use the term collateral damage. That's a dehumanizing phrase. But it's a statement that's meant to, to communicate to you. Sin will always have its ripple effects in the lives of those that are closest to you. It will always hurt people around you. This week I I read the testimony of a woman who decided that she couldn't live with her husband anymore. Um, She had ways that she wanted him to change, and he said, I'm not going to change. She wasn't being abused. It was just irreconcilable differences. That's what they wrote on the decree. And she wrote that telling her kids was the hardest conversation she's ever had, and she'll never forget the looks on their faces when she told them that the marriage of their parents was over. You hear somebody say, well, they're children, they're resilient, they'll recover. That's a lie. Your sin will always produce collateral damage. It will hurt your spouse, it will hurt your children, your business, your friendship, your church. Always, always, this is what happens. Just part of the ripple effect of sin. Now, briefly, we have to talk about why the Bible goes into such detail here. I'll just do a little more than just mention this. Why does the Bible tell us these things? Why is this story here? Four reasons I'll share with you. Number one, to warn us. To warn us. Do not make the same choices that David did. If you're on this same path of destruction, stop. Get help. Sin will cost you more than you want to pay. Brothers and sisters, we're here to help each other in this. The elders serve in in part to help you and to encourage you, to help you so that you don't make a shipwreck of your life. So take this message here this morning as a warning from God to hear this, to turn from your wicked ways. The story's here to warn us. Secondly, this story is here to explain the condition of the world, to explain the condition of the world Notice the ripple effect of this sin on this woman, Tamar, dear woman. David unleashes this chaos into his family, and there's chaos in the world because of our rebellion against God. It's the way the world is, the ripple effect of our sin. There are children this morning who are starving to death in Syria, or there are children that have been sold into slavery in Nigeria, and children who are sexually abused in Michigan. It's the ripple effect of brokenness. Now third, oddly enough, this story I think is also here to comfort us. Seems strange, but it's here to comfort us. 
For those of you who have gotten sucked into the ripple effect of someone else's sin, remember this chapter. It tells us that David was forgiven yet disciplined and Amnon was punished for his sin. Her father failed her. Her father failed Tamar, but God did not. He used Absalom, rough justice. But Amnon suffered for his sin. This punishment here that he experienced is not final, it's not perfect, it's not complete, but it is detailed and specific. That's the way God works. He cares for, he hears, he responds to what was done to Tamar and to Bathsheba. The story is here to comfort us. Finally, the story is here to cause us to cry out for relief. To cry out for relief. What a mess. Who's going to fix this mess? Is there anyone who can definitively, finally, perfectly, and completely repair this broken world, this broken family? These are God's people. This is David, a man after God's own heart. And look at the mess in his own family. Reminds me uh, of what the angel told Joseph in a dream about the Lord Jesus. So Mary was pregnant in Matthew chapter 1, and the angel came to Joseph, and he said to him, Name the baby Jesus. Why should you name the baby Jesus? Because he will save his people from their sin. Matthew had just recorded Jesus' genealogy. All these names. Jesus is going to save this type of people, his family, from their sin. Ephesians 5 tells us how about the, how the Lord Jesus has done it. Listen to what verse 26 says. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Brothers and sisters, I have good news for you this morning. Actually, I have good news for Tamar and all who feel her pain. Everyone who is, who is desolate. What does the Lord Jesus do? He washes. The Bible tells us that sin stains. It stains your soul. It stains your name. (coughs) It stains your character. And the sin of other people stains you too. It makes you feel dirty. You know the first thing that every victim of sexual assault does, one of the first things they do, they take a shower. Wash away the stain of what was done to them. There's this instinct there. And what does Jesus do? Ephesians 5 tells us. He washes us. He cleanses us. He makes us stand before him holy, without wrinkles or blemishes. He comes to people like Tamar and he washes the ashes from their hair and he wipes the tears from their eyes and he gives them a new robe the robe of his own righteousness. Tamar said, where can I get rid of my disgrace? And the answer, Tamar, is found in your great, great, great grandnephew. He took your disgrace and he made it his own. His clothes were torn. He was nailed naked to a cross. He took your sin and your disgrace to himself and he declares his people clean. And this passage is in this passage, in this book, so that we would cry out to him for relief. Let's talk to him about that now, shall we? 
Oh, Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning and we give you thanks that you are the great conquering hero. You are the one who offered yourself on the cross for us that we might be cleansed and made whole. Lord, we read this story and we recognize so much of the evil that is in our world in it. For some people in the room, this is their experience. This is not just a distant story, but there are women like Tamar who have suffered. There are men who suffer the assaults of those in power. Lord, we come before you and we cry out to you for those who are a a part of our church, those we know are outside of our church and in our family who have experienced this. And Lord, we pray that you would grant them the relief of the good news that comes from the good news that the Apostle Paul proclaimed, that Christ cleanses us from our sin. He washes us through the word and presents us to himself as holy, wrinkle, holy and without wrinkles or blemish or stain. Lord, we pray these things with full knowledge that around the world there is grievous brokenness. And you, Lord Jesus, have offered yourself. You died and rose again, and you are going to return as the conquering king of the world. And you'll put an end to all of this brokenness and evil and all the staining that is ours and that we do to ourselves and one another. So we wisely and uh, pitifully join in the Apostle John's entreaty that you would come quickly, that you would put an end to this. Thank you for the freedom and the hope and the joy that is found in the Lord Jesus. He's the one who said, Come unto me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Minister that to us, we pray, by your spirit, through your word. And we ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen. Please stand as we sing once more.